Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, talkingbeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, journalist Roger Lowenstein. He reported for the Wall Street Journal for more than a decade. His work has appeared there in Bloomberg, the New York Times, Washington Post, Fortune, Atlantic, and other publications. His books include New York Times bestsellers Buffett, When Genius Failed, and The End of Wall Street. He's here with new book in hand called Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War. When the Confederate States seceded in 1860 following Abraham Lincoln's election, the U.S. Treasury had no money, no federal bank, and no authorization to raise taxes. But in this sea of great national problems, Lincoln saw opportunity and along with the legendary 37th Congress created a situation some call the Second American Revolution. What lessons can we learn today and how does the new war in Ukraine color our understanding of the past and maybe vice versa? Well, Roger Lowenstein joins me now to explain this and more. Welcome. Daniel, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Why did you want to write this book? You're a finance person and a history person, but foremost, perhaps a finance person. Uh, why this book? Was it a fascination uh, with this unique period in American history? Was it Lincoln himself, who was endlessly plumbable and fascinating? Why, why was it? Well, you hit on two points right there. Lincoln is endlessly, yes, fascinating and um, really also appealing the more you you read about him and his his wisdom, his humility, a characteristic not always in evidence among modern political leaders. The Civil War period, obviously, is uh, also tremendously uh, compelling and perhaps has an unfortunate resonance to uh, the divisions, the divisiveness in American society today. But the specific thing that drew me in was I, I just hadn't realized um, until I did how revolutionary the Lincoln government was. Uh, you know, I, I knew that, um, of course, they had to fight the Civil War, and I knew that he freed the slaves. Uh, neither of them uh, small items, obviously. But um, when I learned, um, really growing out of the, my previous book, uh, that um, Lincoln had advanced a truly different conception for the federal government. Uh, he said in his first address to Congress, that uh, government, the leading purpose of government was to elevate the condition of men. And uh, his government went on to introduce a whole host of social and economic measures to put uh, the government in, um, in a major role in the economic affairs of the nation and in promoting uh, prosperity and opportunity. Uh, you know, perhaps as Alexander Hamilton might have wished it in the previous century, and certainly as, say, Franklin Roosevelt wished it in the, in the next century, but, but he did it then. Uh, and it was a quite remarkable revolution. And I think one that's largely unknown to most uh, Americans who, who uh, concentrate on um, 
Lincoln's achievements in fighting the war and emancipation. Well, indeed, take us back to that previous century. Talk about the Jefferson versus the Hamilton approach to looking at what the federal government, federal, I guess you could put the word federal in quotes, in a sense, what the federal government uh, could do, should do, shouldn't be doing, that there was a, a huge split uh, between Jefferson and Hamilton, and uh, they articulated very different beliefs about what government had to be. That's right. Um, there was always this tension in um, in American uh, in the American political culture. Uh, it, it really goes back even further. We rebelled against um, the British Crown out of a, a opposition to centralism and you know strong central rule and taxation uh, uh, coming from uh, the central government at that point in um, in England, and that current uh, remained through political life. The uh, Hamilton wanted uh, a more robust, vigorous central government that would um, really be an engine of prosperity and, and investment, and uh, what we'd call the modern capitalism. But um, he basically lost out, and, and the the conception of the founders in general was the was the Jeffersonian concept of the, the government they governed least. It was that was so um, uh, pronounced that that we started out not even with the Constitution, but with the Articles of Confederation, which was um, you know, basically just a, a piece of paper that sort of unified the 13 colonies and, and provided for a common defense. Uh, even after the Constitution, uh, Jefferson referred to the United States as a, as a confederated fabric, um, you know, a, not, not really in a united nation, but, but just a, a confederation of states. And um, and did he like it like that? I mean, is is that what he wanted it to be, or it was simply it was, it was, mostly, it was mostly what he wanted to be. When he was president, he was a little more activist. But you know, that's when he had the power. He he wasn't. Um, um, he was a little less afraid of using it. But um, but but essentially, yes. And in um, in retirement, he grew even wearier. He uh, he issued a uh, a solemn declaration that the U.S. was drifting towards. Uh, what he considered to be uh, a, a tyrannical government, uh, mainly because um, uh, the Federalists, the, the other party then was advocating that the, that the federal government do things like build roads, uh, you know, the infrastructure, the, the build back better of, of their day. And roads are very important. If, if you lived out uh, in places like Kentucky or Ohio, uh, the, the roads are very bad. It took forever to get goods. Um, to the east. In fact, it was it was cheaper and easier to ship them from England, the East Coast, and from the what we now call the Middle West, the United States, and uh, just for common prosperity and transportation was was hugely important. But they didn't want it. You know, much the way we have great debates today over national health care, um, uh, there were great debates over so-called internal improvements, building roads, canals, railroads. And six different presidents, all of them Democrats, Jefferson's party, vetoed uh, such plans. And they also vetoed things like the Homestead Act, where, whereby the federal government would give uh, land to settlers who, who uh, moved west and, and farmed the territory. Uh, there was a, a bill to create uh, colleges for the middle class. That was vetoed. Uh, and, and when you got to 1860, uh, the federal government was, was really pretty much as, as Jefferson might have wished it had been. There was a postal service. There were some scattered forts with the 
with U.S. troops and not much else. And, 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 and there, was no, uh, there was no financial apparatus, no central bank, no, no, no national currency. There were no means uh, to fight a big war or do anything else. And when you say scattered troops, you really mean very few troops, what, 16,000 at one point? 16,000 troops, that's right. And, you know, most of them west of the Mississippi uh, involved in um, Indian wars, but, uh, but um, you know, nothing in the way that, that could have been um, you know, marshaled to, to fight something like the Civil War. You say in the book you're describing the situation in 1860, something you just alluded to, where uh, the Treasury had literally run out of money. Uh, there was no way to raise taxes, no currency. And by no currency, talk about what that means. You really mean there was no fixed standard uh, paper, yeah, there were, there were, paper um, money. There was there were, a there was, there was, standard. Um, gold and silver coins, but those are cumbersome to carry around. They are relatively scarce. So what people did was uh, they would uh, lend assets to banks and, and banks would issue notes. There was just IOUs. Uh, and uh, if you went across the street from the bank and, and, and presented its note to uh, a dry goods store or something, they'd probably honor it. But if you went, uh, if you went a few cities away or something, they might discount it a little bit because they weren't so familiar with the bank. And if, if you went several states uh, uh, to the east, they discounted a whole lot or refuse it. Uh, so, and there were there were hundreds of these banks, and each had uh, many many different notes. So there were thousands of different notes issued by uh, hundreds of different banks in uh, twenty five or thirty states. Um, you know, there was a, 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 a you know, the, the same way if you get into a, an area with a lot of uh, People from different nationalities speaking, you know, speaking different tongues. Well, we we had a polyglot currency that was um, not not very workable in ord- ordinary life and completely unworkable uh, for raising the vast sums that might be needed for something like the Civil War. Well, how surprised were you when you learned this, or did you know this about the currency? Because I think it'll strike a lot of people as very surprising that uh, as late as 1860, it's not all that long ago in a sense. Uh, we were sort of slipshod in, in our approach to dealing with money. It's not a complete surprise, Daniel, growing out of the very question you asked before uh, about this um, aversion to centralism. Uh, someone's got to issue, uh, if there's going to be one currency, someone's got to issue it. Uh, that someone is gen- was generally in the 19th century, uh, the central bank, the the what started out in England and other places is the bank to the king. Um, and the U.S. had had a central bank, but because of these very same uh, passions against strong central government, uh, we got rid of it. That was under James Madison, and we found we needed a central bank, so we formed another one that was called the Second Bank of the United States. And once again, it was done in, once again, by a Democrat, of course, by Andrew Jackson. So... Um, you know, it was, it was almost as if uh, the uh, ideology of the Democrats was uh, better that people should go poor than submit to the tyranny of a, of a central bank. So um, that, that is our political culture. Let's talk about the geographic divisions, uh, what the South did and what the North did, how the South became ever more decimated financially and how the North uh, became successful, uh, and the, the the poverty and the uh, awful quality of life that pervaded 
uh, the South and the unwillingness of the uh, land-owning class, the plantation-owning class who, who ran the South, to, for example, tax. But as uh, you pointed out, there was certainly a great willingness to die. Yes. Um, so uh, when the war starts, uh, both, um, both North and South realize um, they're going to need a lot of money to pay for it. Lincoln, in fact, said that the side with the most resources uh, will win the war. Um, just um, to put an, an overlay on it, any government really can raise funds in, in one of three ways. Uh, they can tax it, meaning transfer some of the wealth from their citizens to, to the government coffers. Uh, they can borrow it, just you know, borrowing the wealth of their citizens or overseas from others, or they can just print it. Uh, and in that case, you're not really printing wealth, you're just, you're just printing money and, and hope uh, people accept it. And the, the extent to which you use any one of these uh, influences the, the uh, usefulness of the others. For instance, if you um, if you tax in sufficient quantities, you'll be more likely to attract uh, lenders because they'll have more faith in the government and the real resources behind this government. On the other hand, if you if you go haywire in printing money, uh, no one's going to want to lend to you because um, you know you're going to be causing tremendous inflation, the fear of inflation, and and people are going to back off. We're, we're dealing with uh, inflation in the United States today, and and you can see uh, how. Um, Worried people are getting, even with approximately eight percent inflation in the United States, which is, which is the highest it's been in, in several decades. Well, they had a lot worse uh, during the Civil War. The, the North, but but the results North and South were very different, and I think they went a, a great deal of ways towards influencing the outcome. Uh, in the North, they proposed. Um, uh, I should say they, be, they began by borrowing gold from bankers. That was how they began to pay for the war during the first year. But there simply wasn't enough gold. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, they arranged uh, Salmon Chase, the Treasury Secretary under Lincoln, uh, through very tortured negotiations, arranged to borrow 50 million of gold from the leading banks of the, the, the East Coast cities in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. The banks were very reluctant uh, because we basically cleaned them out. But, but under Chase's prodding and with patriotic motives, they agreed. They had a celebratory dinner. In Washington, one of the bankers stood up and said, "Mr. Chase, Mr. Secretary, you got your fifty million. I hope you're happy, and and this should do it. This should take care of, of, of all your needs for the war." So I have to tell you, Daniel, before the war was over, uh, the government spent sixty times of, of the sum that had so frightened uh, the bankers of the day. When it became apparent that that banks and the, the banks of that era were small, didn't have the capital to finance the war. The North went to a radical departure. Uh, they legislated something called uh, legal tender, just, just pieces of paper uh, that would have the legal standing of money. Uh, just like the, um, the fiat money we have today, the dollar bills aren't backed by anything except the full faith and credit of the United States government. But back then, it was a very new idea and a frightening idea. People thought that only gold and silver had were real money, had real intrinsic value. How could you call a piece of paper uh, money? Um, there were tremendous debates about this, quite quite philosophical and and uh, earnest, and, you know, at an intellectual level. But at the end of the day, uh, the Lincoln government needed the money, and they thought that they were afraid that no one would accept these pieces of paper unless they had to. 
So they made them uh, legal tender. They had to take them. And in fact, the people loved them. They called them Lincoln dollars. And of course, they called them greenbacks. And uh, they were very happy to have uh, be able to carry around a piece of paper and use for transactions uh, that, uh, that stores and others would accept. And the Lincoln government was able to use these pieces of paper uh, to pay contractors and soldiers and, and, and pay for the war. They did, however, do something that was at the same time that I think was quite well advised. Uh, to reassure creditors, they also revolutionized the tax system. I say revolutionized, they really created a tax system. The government up until then had relied only on a small amount of money from land sales and on the tariff. Once the war started, uh, shipping greatly dropped. There wasn't a lot of commerce uh, during the war certainly during the early stages of the war, and um, the union needed a lot more tax revenue. So they created income tax, first ever, the progressive income tax. Uh, and then there were also all sorts of other taxes on specific industries and professions and fees and everything. They tax everything under the sun, as, as one legislator said. And this gave the federal government for the first time um, a real revenue base. And this reassured creditors and it enabled the government to borrow uh, even more money, uh, several billions of dollars before the war was over, uh, largely through a now famous financier, uh, Jay Cook, who went um, really town to town through a series of, of uh, agents. Uh, Cook had the insight that, that the American citizenry, uh, if you could approach them in the right way, uh, had, the, had the resources that when accumulated, would be a decisive force in the war. And, and, and that really happened. He, he uh, recruited newspapers and agents throughout the country. He bombarded them with ads. He pressed them to do their bit, just as you know, the government would do later in the, the famous uh, bond campaigns of World War I and World War II. But this all began with the Civil War. Um, and it, it, um, it not only gave the Union the resources to fight the war, it saved, um, it saved the government from uh, bankruptcy and the, the union emerged from the war, even having spent that all money in better financial condition than it went into it, which is um, quite remarkable, really. Um, how, how tough of a sell was it when you're talking about, well, they instituted taxes? Okay, well, how difficult was that? How do you do that? Who, who were some of the visionary people who said, uh, look, to get through this, to advance ourselves and maybe to to ultimately win, we, we need to do this. What, what kind of conversations were had? Well, it's a good question. Um, there were very vigorous debates in Congress. One of the great fears was that for the first time, there were going to be federal tax assessors and federal tax collectors uh, going into uh, businesses and homes. And um, one of the uh, uh, opponents said, you know, shouldn't we just leave collection to the states, which is something what happened in the Confederacy? And which is how it had always been. And this, again, this fear of a strong federal government. Um, Thaddeus Stevens, who is a vigorous uh, nationalist and pro federal government representative from Pennsylvania, uh, replied very snarkily and sarcastically um, will, the, uh, will the tax collectors be any more numerous if they're working for the federal government rather than the states? Will they be any more odious to the people? He said again, quite. Um, sarcastically. And, and then he pointed out um, in a more serious vein, but uh, quite profoundly that uh, Stephen said it was this original defect 
uh, under the Articles of Confederation uh, that undid the first American framework, meaning the federal government as it was first conceived after the Revolutionary War had no taxing power and essentially had no revenue base. And that the government proved so weak uh, under the Articles of Confederation that um, they had to call uh, representatives and form a new constitution. So what, what Stevens was saying is the government we're defending now, its origins go to the need for taxing power. We, we tried this route once, putting all of the uh, financial power in the states, and it didn't work. Uh, and um, even though they had no idea how much revenue the, the tax would raise, they, they, had, they had no estimation of, of popular income, much less uh, you know, whether people would pay the tax, whether they would evade it, and so, and so forth. Um, but, but they passed it. This was in 1862 and um, significantly elevated later in the war. Uh, people were, I think, surprisingly willing to go along with it. Um, you know, later in the, after the war, when the need wasn't as urgent, uh, people began to feel differently, not, not surprisingly. But um, quite vast sums were raised with these taxes, income tax and, and other taxes. And with um, relatively, relatively few objections. So I think there was a, um, a patriotic feeling. One of the senators in the Finance Committee, John Sherman, most people might know today as the author of the Sherman Antitrust Act several decades later, but he, um, he voiced a new sentiment. He said, we want to make everything as national as possible. So we want uh, people to have contact with the federal government. We want uh, people to be contributing to the, the federal government because he said, uh, in that way, people shall love their country, not their state, which had always been the the emphasis before, uh, but the federal government. That was the philosophy of the Republicans. And um, under, with the urgency of wartime, uh, Northerners by and large went along with it. Where did this come from in Lincoln, to loop it back to Lincoln, who's on the cover of your book, and as, as we've said, the endlessly fascinating figure, where did this willingness or want uh, to go in this direction come from him? Was it something, sort of a value system that he grew up with? Was it something that developed later on? Did he have people around him who pulled him in that direction saying, look, we have to do this? Or was it part of his grand vision? Well, another thing I hadn't realized about Lincoln is um, economics came very early to him. In fact, his main issues and virtually his only issues over his first two decades of his political career were economic issues. They were basically the issues of economic opportunity. He wanted, he, he was a Whig. The Whigs were the party of, uh, of Webster and Clay, uh, Lincoln's uh, heroes. Um, and their platform was for a more vigorous federal government to do things like um, building canals and railroads, uh, setting up a tariff to protect uh, American industry against uh, basically Britain and, and uh, other European uh, imports. Uh, reinstituting the central bank, the, the national bank that Jackson had done away with. These were issues that touched Lincoln at a most personal level. He'd grown up on the frontier in an area without transportation. He'd written in his uh, campaign biography of having to uh, drive a team of oxen across muddy and rutted roads. He'd traveled the roads of Illinois as a, a lawyer in, in uh, central Illinois and experienced the hardship of it. He'd clerked for a store that he'd put it as had winked out as a lack of currency. So he believed very much in um, 
a strong national currency and, and a national bank to, to supply credit to the people. Um, he, he very much believed uh, in um, government and taking the reins and helping to create opportunity. And along with these financial measures, um, the Lincoln government, uh, as I alluded to, passed the Homestead Act, you know, sort of an emblematic uh, creator of opportunity bills, uh, setting up farmers with, with a gift of land. Uh, a remarkable measure was the Morrill Act, uh, the land-grant college bill, which created colleges uh, for the middle class across the country. And these, you know, these still exist. Uh, I went to Cornell, that was a land-grant college. Michigan State, Penn State, Oregon State, and after the war, extended to a series of land-grant colleges in the South as well. And the, the vision there was that college shouldn't only be for the wealthy and shouldn't only teach uh, you know, Greek and, and theology like they mainly did at the prestigious Ivy League schools, but they should be public schools teaching practical arts for, for middle-class Americans. You know, to have done this in the midst of the Civil War at a time when Fewer than 1% of Americans were in college. I just think a remarkable vision. As I said, Lincoln had always believed this in government. He, he reminded the people why they were fighting the war in that first address to Congress when, when he said uh, the leading object of government is to elevate the condition of men. And contrast that with what the South did. Take us into the world of the South. What did they do with taxes or with. So, the South was very worried about. Um, about big government. Um, in some respects, you can see um, those historical um, patterns, political cultures retaining some resonance even today. Uh, uh, even going back uh, before the war, the South was very worried about uh, strong central government. There was a politician in North Carolina who put it very well. He said, uh, if a government can build canals, it can more easily emancipate. The South didn't want that. Um, the South also, or, or I should say that the planters who really ran um, uh, Southern states were very much afraid of raising the aspirations of, of, of poor whites. Uh, wealth was not very well distributed in the South. Uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, they were also very afraid in the South of raising the aspirations of poor whites. Uh, Lincoln had the philosophy of uh, every man should have the chance and creating opportunities in colleges and so on uh, for the lower orders, people like himself. He didn't have that vision in the South. Uh, if you go back even to the 1600s, the governor of Virginia said, um, I thank God, he said, that we do not have free public schooling in the South, and I hope that we shall not for 100 years. Uh, the, the South had a very unequal distribution of wealth. And um, they were afraid of doing anything that might raise the aspirations of commoners and perhaps make them um, discontented uh, with the way uh, things were. So they opposed uh, government investing in uh, internal infrastructure and railroads and canals. They opposed the public funding uh, for education. Uh, they opposed any kind of taxation because the wealth was all was heavily concentrated among the planter class in their land and slaves. Um, and this is before the Civil War. Um, once the South seceded, uh, they were very explicit uh, about um, not having a strong central government. Uh, they made it illegal in the Southern Constitution to spend money on so-called internal improvements. 
They made it illegal to have a protective tariff, uh, as the North had done. Um, and they, uh, they rejected things. They considered legal tender. Uh, the, the, the Greenback Bill, the North passed, but rejected it. And they rejected any kind of a, um, of a vigorous taxing system. Because as I said, um, the wealth is all in the planter class. And, and they were opposed to taxation. It was, it was really remarkable that the Southerners were willing to fight and die in heroic and horrific numbers. Uh, but they weren't willing to part um, with their wealth uh, for the cause of the Confederacy. And so, of course, the South had a problem. Uh, they had to pay for the war uh, just as the North did. Uh, their only wealth was in cotton. Uh, they were unable to ship uh, cotton and anything like the quantities that they had before the war uh, to Europe, particularly as the war went on and the Northern Navy, uh, its blockade became uh, more robust. And so uh, since they didn't have a revenue base, uh, they were less able to uh, borrow the revenue. No one trusted them. So that only left them with the third option, and that was printing money. You remember I said that the North was careful about the greenback and not overprinting it. Well, the South um, you know, had no such luxury. They just began to print bills. Uh, it became one of the great uh, inflations in, um, in recorded history. The, uh, a barrel of flour, just to take it one very common, uh, obviously necessary product, when the war began, cost five dollars and fifty cents uh, uh, in the South. Two years later, actually, exactly two years later, in April 1863, um, by that time flour was scarce, and the government was um, hoarding it for the troops, and people had begun to go grow hungry. And in Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, there was a actually a food riot uh, led by women. Most of the men were off uh, at the front. And they rioted, they broke into uh, uh, storehouses where the flour was kept. Um, uh, not a good sign when um, wives and mothers of the people you want to fight for you were growing hungry. Uh, by that time, the price of flour had gone up to $38 a barrel, so seven times as much. Remember, in the U.S. today, we're unhappy with 7 or 8% inflation. This was seven times as much. By a year later, the price of flour uh, was $200 a barrel. And by the time the last gun sounded at Appomattox in 1865, flour cost $1,000 in the South. Um, under that type of inflation, uh, the economy completely broke down. Uh, the will to fight uh, was, was uh, often eroded. Soldiers began to desert in increasing numbers. Nobody wants to fight or is willing to fight if their family is starving. Their letters were one woman wrote to the governor of North Carolina, I don't know what we're fighting for. I think we're fighting to starve, he said. And the, and the, um, although the Southern armies fought very bravely, uh, their, um, their economy really broke down first and, and really undid them. Uh, but just, just pause for one second here, because yeah. here, we, here we are in, uh, in early, well, let's call it early spring 2022, and a, a new war has been sprung upon the world uh, in in Ukraine with the Russians attacking. Uh, what do you think the economic effects? You're a money person. You know a lot about money, and <laughs> you write about money. What what kind of economic effect you think it'll take before something like you're describing that happened in the South happens in Russia? Well, it's a it's a great comparison. Let's just go back for a minute uh, with that comparison. 
So what was the South thinking? Uh, they, um, they knew they weren't as wealthy as the North. They knew that all the industry in the country was the North. Therefore, they knew that they were going to be reliant once the trade with the North stopped, they were going to have to go to Europe. You know, they had to know the North was going to interrupt their shipping. What were they thinking? What they were thinking was that the world so needed their cotton that, uh, that uh, there would be a war. Cotton, by the way, was the, it was the oil and gas of the 19th century. It was the first big manufacturing industry, the Industrial Revolution. It really, it really got the Industrial Revolution going. The South had three quarters of the world's cotton. Uh, there were a million or more people employed in, uh, in the mill cities of New England, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and, and England and France. And they were very dependent on the South. In 1858, the Southern Senator, James Hammond, got on the floor of the Senate and said, cotton is king. No one's going to make war on us. And the South really believed that, that, that they were immune. Um, and, and when they seceded, it was out of a belief that the North would never dare attack them because the North needed their cotton. And that if they did, Britain and France would somehow intervene and stop the war because uh, they would need their cotton. This is just a, a colossal miscalculation, you know, as we've seen uh, with, the, with the war happening and, um, and the South suffering really economic devastation, which, which, which really ended its ability to fight the war. So now let's go to Russia. Russia uh, is sitting pretty uh, with a different commodity cartel, of course, an energy cartel. Europe is extremely dependent on it. Uh, Germany is the biggest economy in Europe. And the uh, last figure I saw, Germany got 55% of its gas from Russia and 45% of its oil. So naturally, uh, Putin figured that he could pretty much have his way with the Ukraine, as he had with the eastern parts of Ukraine and, and earlier with Kazakhstan and Belarus and Chesty and so on, and, and nobody would lift a finger. Uh, uh, oil was king, he might have said, just like uh, Senator Hammond had said it in the U.S. Senate. 160 years uh, earlier. Um, I, I think what's happened is, is that um, you know, we can see already, we, we don't know who's going to win the shooting war, but it's obviously a lot tougher than um, Putin figured. Uh, the Ukrainians are, are resisting uh, bravely and courageously, and the West has responded with very vigorous sanctions. The U.S. has already embargoed any uh, Russian energy products and the uh, other Western nations are, uh, as we seek, assessing so far lesser, but, but, but still their own uh, sanctions on, uh, on Russian energy. And, and I suspect that before we're done, there won't be a drop of uh, oil or any gas supported by uh, any wow. Western or NATO state uh, from Russia. How long does it take for sanctions to have a serious effect? So I heard someone on now, not that, of course, you don't believe everything you hear. I certainly believe what you say, though, Roger Lowenstein. So so I heard someone say, well, it can take months or years even for this, the magnitude of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia to have such a, a stark effect as they are meant to have. Um, but on the other hand, certainly if the average person on his way to work at an office building in downtown Moscow stops for, your, for a venti skim latte, you know, at Starbucks every morning, and now that's closed, uh, that's okay, not the biggest deal in the world, but it's not nothing. So they can live without their Starbucks, I think, but um, what if they go to, they can live without uh, other uh, imported products, although 
you know, it'll, it'll start to um, implant in the, in the um, average Russian's mind, hey, there's a cost to this war. Uh, but what if um, they have trouble pulling money out of the bank? Or if when they do pull money out of the bank, uh, the cost of goods, uh, is, the price of goods is going up a lot because after all, there are no foreign supplies and there, there are fewer supplies. And, and so what's left? You know, supply and demand. Things start to cost more. Uh, now, now there's inflation and uh, people don't like uh, sudden inflation. What if also um, they're not able to use their credit card, their visas and their MasterCards uh, because the, there's been a, a complete interruption in the banking system. Now, all those steps haven't happened yet. It, it really depends on the severity, but I suspect that if the war goes into not just weeks, but, but months and many months, uh, you know, the sanctions are gonna get uh, tighter and tighter. You know, they start with things like um, uh, activities that seem to be uh, directly helpful to the war effort. So you know, lending the Russians money or supplying them aircraft parts. And I think they're going to spread to anything that supports the Russian economy in, in any way. One of the Confederate leaders uh, back in the Civil War said, we weren't whipped to the battlefield, we whipped in the Treasury Department. Uh, I think the, the Russians are slowly being whipped in the Treasury Department. And I think, to answer your question, in some matter of months, uh, there are going to be very real hardships on the Russian people economically, even on people who are, who are innocent. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to suffer, but, but um, the Putin government is going to be less popular, at least behind closed doors. And then, of course, the, you know, the $64 question, the 64 ruble question, mm-hmm. is um, what means are there in Russia, uh, which is not a democracy, uh, for them to, um, to make their discontent uh, known? Uh, but, but they're going to start to hear casualty tolls coming back from the front. They've been told that there's no real war, but that's not going to fly as more and more of their sons are, are not coming home. Uh, so I, I, I think it's impossible to pinpoint a time, but um, in, in areas, again, to go back to the Confederacy, North Carolina was so opposed to the toll of the war that it was on the verge of seceding itself from the secession government of the Confederacy. And there were various backwoods areas in many states that had, had effectively pulled out. They were patrolled with civilian militia. No Confederate troops could enter. And, you know, they had seceded from the secession. There was real civilian discontent. And regardless of the form of the government, that will take its toll. I think the Russians are, are going to see that in, in, in a lesser or greater number of months. One thing we've talked about before on this program is Putin's co-opting of the great Russian of the great Russian culture, whether it's a uh, Tchaikovsky or Tolstoy and uh, and using it for his own means, you know, playing Tchaikovsky at the opening of the Sochi Olympics as if Tchaikovsky would <laughs> uh, have anything to do with Putin uh, under the sun. But, you know, on this program, because it's talking beats and uh, I am, after all, uh, in music, uh, we always do talk a little bit about music here. And I'm always curious to see what people are listening to and what music does uh, what does it do for you, Roger Lowenstein? Well, it stirs me. You know, when I hear Tchaikovsky, it stirs me. Or Rachmaninoff, who's my favorite Russian composer and, and probably favorite composer um, any ethnicity. And, um, I, you know, I think it's important not to let um, this war isn't against 
um, Russian people. It's not against the Russian ethnicity. The music isn't any different today than it was two weeks ago before the war started. Um, so, you know, I'm going to continue to be stirred by Russian and other great music and, and um, uh, hope that we can prevail in the war. In, indeed, I was just in, in the car with a colleague recently. We were driving to a chamber music concert and there had been a, a lot of snafus with bad weather and things like that. And there we were somewhere uh, along the route and, uh, you know, a little bleary eyed. Uh, and then he put on the uh, third piano concert of Rachmaninoff in the legendary recording played by Arthur Rubinstein mm. with mm. Fritz Reiner conducting. And mm. uh, and when it first started, it just uh, hit me like a, a punch in the solar plexus. And there I was wide awake <laughs> for the uh, duration. It was so good and so powerful. And it's a absolutely must and have. The, must the hear. passion of it and um, uh, the gravitas and the passion, it, it, it's as if it were... Um, had been uh, written to be the uh, the score for uh, a great battle scene, perhaps. Absolutely. Or, or perhaps a great human personal tragedy, but uh, of which Rachmaninoff knew plenty in his own life. But um, uh, so um, uh, it, it's 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 music that hits you in the solar plexus for sure. Roger Lowenstein, as you uh, as you look towards the future, you. You tend to write about financial-related uh, topics, and here you've taken a deep dive into the past, into a ever-fascinating man, Lincoln, and this period of American history that, that was so uh, altering for the rest of the world, even the rest of the country, uh, the Civil War, what happened during and after. So when, when you look at today, when you look at all the problems we have getting anything passed in a bipartisan way. I understand you're not a politician and not necessarily a political reporter, but you look at the 37th Congress and some of the things they did, some of the groundbreaking decisions uh, they made, the Transcontinental Railroad, the uh, great federal investments in agriculture, education, uh, the progressive income tax, the IRS, all these things that were done in a bipartisan manner. What do we need to do right now uh, for our economy uh, to put us in good footing so that people my age and generation coming up next can feel confident about the future? You know, I think we obviously lack um, leadership in, in um, Washington and elsewhere. Um, Lincoln had, um, uh, he, he was just so wise and so humble. Um, he didn't try to um, uh, lecture uh, the people or, or harangue them. Uh, uh, Lowell, the great uh, Harvard uh, poet of his time, said that um, he leads so gently, he almost seems to be following the people. Of course, he, he, he wasn't following, but he was, um, he was a pragmatic politician. Uh, he was opportunistic. He didn't get too far out, out ahead, uh, but he as Lowell said, uh, led them ever so gently. And I think what was attractive about Lincoln, uh, well, many things were attractive about Lincoln, but in particular, a quality that we lack today was his humility. He was, long before he was president, he served one term in Congress, a time in Washington, prior, and he was defending a bill of his for internal improvements against a withering attack, saving attack. And... Um, all he said was in reply to this, this gentleman, the other party who just 
uh, excoriated Lincoln. He said, um, most things, especially of government policy, aren't all good or all evil. Most things have some good and some evil in them. And we're just looking for things that have more good than evil. Uh, you know, such a beautifully restrained, modest, humble way of, of presenting his policy that we think this has a little more good than evil. And um, maybe if we had uh, more statesmen who uh, advanced their, their briefs in that spirit, that we could accomplish more. More statesmen in that spirit of Lincoln Okay, I don't know if I'll hold my breath, but I'll certainly go hear some Rachmaninoff in the meantime and take my mind off it all, and then we'll come right back and have the same problems. Uh, in the meantime, Roger Lowenstein, uh, with a new book in hand, which is uh, hot off the press, uh, hopefully will illuminate uh, many subjects, ways and means, Lincoln and his cabinet and the financing of the Civil War. Uh, indeed, sir, I thank you very much. Daniel, it's been a pleasure talking. You've been listening to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and write a review if you would. That really helps. The original music for this show is by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. For more information, visit the website of the show, talkingbeats.com. Thank you for listening. This is Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk.